Welcome back to the 430 Movie. We got our expert programmers here to curate Fantasy Theme Week's of classic film from 1998 film directed by Steven Soderbergh called Out of Sight yes Soderbergh directs it with such a sort of confident self-assured style Lex Luthor in Superman what is it about Gene Hackman that uh... his performance it's off the charts but still in reality fiendishly gifted 1981 Sam Raimi Opus The Evil Dead oh yes fine choice Sam Raimi invented entirely new ways to get shots that should not have been possible with the amount of money that he did not have charade oh directed by Stanley Donnan it's a textbook screenplay it's just effortless and there's not a wrong note in this movie can't say enough great things about it we'll be back next Friday with an all new episode of the 430 movie wherever you listen to podcasts join us now for the 430 Movie. The 430 Movie Podcast is available weekly wherever you listen to podcasts and on the free Electric Now app. Download it today. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And if you're a fan of this podcast, you already know the 50-year mission is the definitive oral history of Star Trek. And Secrets of the Force will tell you everything you want to know about the history of Star Wars. But what you probably don't know is Ed Gross and I have a new book coming out this July. They shouldn't have killed his dog. The complete uncensored ass-kicking oral history of John Wick, Gun Fu, and the new age of action. Coming from St. Martin's in hardcover, digital, and audio. You can order it today. Sundays on Electric Now. Tune in to the official Leverage Redemption After Show, a very distinctive podcast with me, Yell Teagle, and my co-host, Felicia Michelle. Each week, we'll be breaking down another episode of Leverage Redemption. Plus, we've got exclusive interviews with the stars, as well as some games, and we'll even be showing off some amazing fan art. So after you watch Leverage Redemption on IMDb TV, you'll definitely want to join us here to catch all the Easter eggs and behind-the-scenes fun. The official Leverage Redemption After Show, a very distinctive podcast. Sundays on Electric Now. If you like listening to this podcast, you'll love watching us on Electric Now, the free video streaming app featuring video versions of all your favorite Electric Surge podcasts, along with full seasons of The Librarians, Leverage, the exclusive Leverage Redemption After Show, as well as Flash Gordon serials, hysterical comedy specials, and much more. Download it today from your favorite app store or watch us on Roku, Stir, DistroTV, Zumo, Sling, or Plex. Welcome to Best Movies Never Made, the podcast where we explore interesting and infamous movies that never made it to or through production. I am your co-host, Josh Miller, and with me, as always, is Mr. Steven Scarletta. How are you doing today, Josh? Oh, jinx. Got it. (laughs) Got to work out our rhythm. Well, we are doing good. We're very excited (laughs) to be joined by our guests today. We have filmmakers, writers, producers, directors, author... Uh, we have Michael Miner and Mark Lafia. Um, you guys might know Michael Miner as co-creator of a little character called RoboCop. Um, and Mark is an author. Uh, he has made films such as Exploding Oedipus. And what, one thing I wanted to ask you about uh, on, your, on your IMDb when I was looking you up, you wrote for the Michael Jackson black or white video, Mark. Is that a correct credit? That is correct. I worked with a a director, David Fincher, when he was at Propaganda Films and making a bunch of music videos. And one day he asked me to come in 
he was going to be Jody Watley in 45 minutes. And there was this song and he said, Mark, I, you got to just sit over there and write something for me. And from that, I went on and worked about like 10 videos for him. I'd always write and I'd bring him books. And so I worked on that video and I <laughs> met Mr. Michael Jackson, Jackson in person. It was kind of fun. <laughs> That's so cool. cool. Did you uh, work at Propaganda? Yes, I did. Right? You did. Wow. That was I used to be a messenger when I first moved out to L.A. And and that was like the biggest thing was propaganda. It was huge getting those reels and delivering them all over L.A. You guys. And then seeing all those directors, you know, start directing really big movies, too. It was such a big deal, that company. That's pretty awesome. You know, Steve, uh, one of my favorite treats of this podcast is no matter how many we do, you always come up with some random <laughs> new job you had when you moved out to L.A. that I didn't know about. <laughs> I had so many. I was a mercenary. It was just yeah. by the phone and it would ring. And then one second I'm like, you know, I did not know what I was going to do one day to the next. So anyway, sorry to bore the audience with that. No, no, no. We, we've all had those. My first paying gig uh, after film school was a camera assistant on two uh, 35 millimeter uh, 35 millimeter pornos shot back to back in one week and I was oh, wow. one, ca one camera assistant <laughs> that's more of a moth radio uh, uh, monologue so we won't dive into that Although it's oh, no. a good yeah. segue because uh, we always ask our guests to tell us their origin stories how they got into the business um, and I guess actually, before we get into that, Steve, I know you wanted to thank uh, Tway Nguyen, uh, who's become yes, an thank you. friend of the show. Yeah, big friend of the show, Tway Nguyen, for introducing us to our guests today. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, what is your guys origin stories? How did you each respectively get into the business? And obviously, how did you guys meet each other? Mark, you want to start? George? Go ahead, Michael. Go. George, Mark, George, Mark. <laughs> I asked you to go, but I could tell you when I first met Michael Miner, <clears throat> he was a bit of a legend. And uh, I, I kind of, a, uh, at a distance, I came to the UCLA Film School. Maybe Michael had been there already three years. I think I got there in 79. And he was shooting a lot of... Um, the uh, films and he, he was quite a brilliant uh, cinematographer and I was on an evening show and I, you know, I had this, I dream of you, Michael, the other day, smoking <laughs> a camel cigarette, <clears throat> camel lights. Is that correct? It was actually Marlboro Reds. Okay. Marlboro Reds. So Michael's, you know, he's, he's a tall fellow. So he's very elegant the way he hand holds this camera and uh, I'll, just, I'll never forget this terrible moment on my part when Michael's, you know, working to sh shoot this film. It was late at night or something. He said, hey, Mark, can you get me a cup of coffee? And I was such an asshole. I was like, Michael, I don't get coffee for people, you know? <laughs> and I don't know, somehow, I, 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 it's so terrible. They could see my um, Anyway, I, he, I don't uh, I'll tell you the story about, um, so, uh, I had gone to the film school because I'd studied philosophy, art history, and I started a film club in my undergraduate school at Whitman College. And I just fell in love with cinema in that period from about, 
I don't know, the late 50s to 1975 was an extraordinary period when filmmakers were real authors. I mean, Antonioni, Bertolucci, Robert Altman, from the American cinest to the French, to the Italians. It, it, was, it was an incredible art form that just told me I at one point thought I'd be a theater director or I was interested in history. So I, I started studying it as an actor and I, I went to the Harvard Summer School doing cinematography. And I just thought, oh, I, I just love film. And I applied to the UCLA Film School. And that's where I met Michael Miner, who was I, I, there quite into the scene. I know he shot films with a lot of the students, including Alex Cox and others. And we shooting documentaries. And I, I, I think his class before me was a really strong group of people. And eventually I'll, I'll tell, you know, I, Michael and I started one person there, Deborah Dion worked for Charles Ban. I think she yes. might've been dating him. <laughs> Michael will know better this story. And somehow, I don't, Michael will remember better again, how we got to write Deadly Weapon, which I got when I got to work with him. And I'll tell you the story of Iron Man later, but I really had a, a, a lot of fun working with him because he was, he, I had always thought of him as the cinematographer, but he was a very disciplined on it writer and very smart and fun to keep us tracking. So yeah, we just, I met him at school. We started working and more work. And how about you, Michael? <laughs> well, Mark, first, thanks for all of that. Um, I'm going to get yeah. you that cup of coffee. Yeah. We're still time. And also it was bad vending machine coffee. I don't know what I was doing asking for it. <laughs> the, um, uh, similar to Mark, um, my or, uh, film origin or Genesis uh, happened uh, around that um, the new wave period in Europe. I, I helped start a film society at UC Riverside when I was there and had to be one of the projectionists because we, you know, started on donations. So uh, we projected all of Bergman's work, um, Fellini, Polanski, Knife in the Water, um, just this treasure trove of incredible surrealism and satire and nostalgia and melancholy, all uh, which American cinema made attempts at at various points. So I fell in love with cinema there. Uh, uh, I would bring films home and we would all uh, ingest heroic doses of LSD and watch Fellini's Satyricon. And um, so I was sort of, it, it was tattooed. Um, and I made a, a short film while at UC Riverside um, and m m learned a lot of mistakes. <laughs> then moved to Pasadena for a left bank period of slovenly excess in which I made another film at Pasadena City College, which got me into um, film school at UCLA, um, which maybe was easier to get in, but there were less petitioners uh, uh, trying to get in because now I guess there are way too many film students and, and too few jobs. Um, so when I got there, I had already shot part of a project one in, in Super 8 um, and uh, out of dumb luck, it astounded everyone. So I had this huge crew for a second film uh, based uh, partially on uh, Philip K, uh, a mashup of Philip K. Dick and, and Jorge Luis Borges. Um, so my three um, 
literary mentors, two of which I met. Borges, uh, Philip K. Dick, and and Burroughs are my three literary mentors. Um, and I, I actually optioned a Philip K. Dick's paycheck with his permission for one year for 500 bucks when uh, I was working at Filmex um, and then met Burroughs and I showed him my project, first project at UCLA, which I, which I used a lot of his readings from Naked Lunch um, as voiceover. And that somehow got me a big crew. So then I was able to make this um, second film, Labyrinths, which was That's a match. Thank you. It was That's uh, a cool movie. <laughs> I, I, I sort of didn't know what I was doing. I was working like Nicholas Rogue, um, more more uh, with um, kind of uh, uh, like a Coltrane um, sax solo instead of a locked uh, uh, script, which you know a, a lot of a lot of the 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 uh, um, sort of would you say uh, expressionistic cinema that included Rogue and some other people was influenced by this. And I would say Maya Darren and, and Brunwell, this sort of um, associative uh, images. And, you know, that I, I was already like deep into, um, I thought I was gonna become a writer director, not really understanding what that meant in the system, because I think film school gives you a freedom that you don't have when you get in the business. You're fine. You, you are the financier, you're the producer, you're the auteur, you're the, the writer, director. And so you have a, a, a tremendous freedom. Um, and, and, and that kind of came crashing down when I attempted to get into Hollywood. Um, and then I met Newmeyer and we co-wrote Robocop and it, cre it, it extended the freedom that I had uh, economically which, you know, once people, a lot of people, and I, I've taught uh, screenwriting at UC Santa Barbara for 12 years. A lot of these people, when they graduate, it's crickets. They have no shot. The shop is closed, but that's, you know, maybe a conversation for another time. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, well, and then, so when did you guys, because, and we can start like this can start getting us into Iron Man as well. Um, when did you guys start trying to actually like work together? And how does Iron Man fit into the timeline with Deadly Weapon? You want to start, Mark? Yeah. Um, yes, I, I just want to say I so much felt this in, it, you know, you're a real you. I mean, all of us know as filmmakers, you're so out. I would, I often sometimes dream if I could have worked in the studios like Nathaniel West in the 1930s or Dashiell Hammett or whatever. There were so many great writers that worked in the studio system, which means you get a paycheck, you go to the cafeteria. If somebody, <laughs> like people don't know who made Casablanca or all these great films, but that, that would have been a, a, a more socialistic or uh you know, factory Hollywood would have been nice, but you get out of school and you're a free agent. And unless, and that, that was the interesting thing, um, Steve, right? Uh, uh, with the propaganda, 
we go mm -hmm. through all this training of history courses, cinema. These guys start making rock videos and they're the ones that go get to direct feature films. And it's like, wait, what, what's <laughs> happening? Why have I spent all my time over here, you know, learning mm -hmm. film theory, film discourse, blah, blah, blah. And uh, so you're really left out there by yourself. But nevertheless, I, you then run into this person and that person. So I met a person named Steve Waterman, was a, a manager of people and he knew Stan Lee. And he, Steve told me that Stan wanted to do this comic book, Iron Man. I knew a lot of comic books because I collected comic books, not Iron Man. I collected like uh, 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 Judge Dredd, which I went 2000 AD, which I went on to write a script for. And uh, there was a nice wave in the late 80s, 90s, Watchmen, Frank Miller's uh, The Dark Knight, and a, a bunch of them, X, uh, Dr. X, Dr. You know, they're really interesting. Anyway, when I mentioned the name Michael Miner, who'd written RoboCop, it was not about me. It's like, if you can get him, <laughs> we can make a deal here. So I was like, hey, Michael. <laughs> do you want to do this project? And I don't know, Michael's like a big shot. Oh, yeah, okay. You know, then, then it was a blast doing it. But it, that, that's how that happened. And so Michael made all the money. I got the guild minimum, but at least I finally got a job, spent it on all the old phone bills and the rent bills and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and for what was nice, he lived just five blocks from me. So I'd wake up in the morning, I'd walk over to his house, very, very organized. You get in there, no bullshit, start talking. And, and he immediately set the typewriter. You don't, he, when you have an idea, he captures the idea of structures it into a, you know, where's the story going? He's constantly outlining. So we always knew by the end of the four or five hour session, where's it going? And, then our, I think we'd take, you know, whatever our imaginations would take off and come back to the session the next day. More ideas. Oh, yeah, Michael. Okay. And, and it, was, it was a blast. And then we handed it in. And I thought it would, would have been great. But like Michael says, you have no idea when you're just a film student or a younger writer what the machinations, machinations behind in the studio are. Michael's had a whole career there to know better why they didn't make it. Was it because I robot failed and it was a robot? I have no idea why they didn't make this great movie. We already told them to have Robert Downey Jr. But maybe I think it finally got made 14 years later. And that's, they, they have all the money to wait it out. So, yeah, I mean, it's an interesting, you know, as a postscript, um, we also, Ed and I were, were uh, called in for a meeting at Canon about um, uh, Spider-Man and Doc Ock. And the director at the time uh, had made like some really bad Canon films. And he was complaining about the cables needed for Doc Ock. So a lot of the Marvel universe, I think, uh, barely survived until... Um, CGI became a viable thing. And so then you could do Doc Ock, you could do Iron Man flying without cables or green screen. And um, so I don't know if our script was unfilmable, um, but that was sort of, I mean, with RoboCop, those were all live mechanical effects and uh, 
uh, matte paintings. And um, you can see when it's projected, it doesn't have that sort of um, CGI cartoonish feel that many of the things have now, although a lot of that has been sanded down and particularly de delivering to the small screen, stuff like Peacemaker is pretty damn good. Yeah. And, and, and there's thousands of effects in there that are sort of embedded in a way that couldn't have been done when Mark, Mark and I wrote that script. But uh, also in terms of content, uh, I think Mark and I are both um, uh, Dadaists, surrealists, uh, far left um, pacifists, and Tony Stark is an arms dealer. And, and Stuart Gordon mainly wanted Iron Man to fight a tank, which, which is the wish he got uh, with the um, first film. Um, and Tony Stark was an arms dealer, which is a, you know, and we tried to subvert that in our own way. Um, because as we all know, billionaire arms dealer is not really a popular uh, <laughs> person right now. Maybe, maybe Peter Thiel is less popular, but <laughs> not, not by, uh, not by much. So I don't know if we were the wrong people for the job, but we did have a great time and, you know, woodshedding. If, if you've seen the first um, hour of the Beatles documentary, you can see there that they're, you know, you know, and then Yoko shows up and it gets a little strange, but um, that's woodshedding, you know, and, and, yeah. and with uh, with story uh, rooms um, that happens all the time with television. So Mark and I were breaking story daily and it was a lot of fun. And I've, I had executives at Universal say they really liked the script, but I, I don't know if it was uh, makeable uh, be, because of the, the nature of uh, special effects at the time. Although it is interesting because you could say that maybe it's unmakeable, but you also made RoboCop, which has, you know, when you just think of the effects of Iron Man fighting, you know, Ed 209 versus, or sorry, RoboCop fighting Ed 209 versus in your script, Iron Man fighting uh, Vermin, you know, uh, I think sure. you can imagine well, how well, those effects can work out. But that's a good point. But, uh, <clears throat> you know, I think RoboCop was a, 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 a chair with with six legs you know there was orion that had all this platoon money there was a verhoven um who english was his second language so he really adored the script and there was john davison who had come up through corman and he was the one who hired phil tippett who did the walking uh, uh assault elephants um rob botin who had done the devil uh, in in legend um, uh, a whole bunch of people from the independent world and working in a right to work state, Texas. I think John is, is, uh, is kind of an underappreciated huge component in Robocop. Uh, and he, and he had the relationship with Barbara Boyle who walked the script into Mike Metavoy at Orion. Uh, and, and, and John has not mentioned that much. And I have to, I don't know of other people, other producers, line producers, who were as capable or who could have influenced Iron Man in that way. I mean, it's, it's, it was a, a tremendous achievement because of John. Michael, what was it like for you to first see the movie? Um, I, I felt like we had lightning in a bottle when I, uh, I, I was supposed to direct second unit and went away and directed deadly weapon, uh, which, uh, and, and, but, but I, I did go for second unit on for two weeks when they blew up the gas station and I thought, 
something special is happening here. Um, of course, everybody was miserable. And, <laughs> you know, they would use the rollout, the last possible frame before a flash, because it was close to the bone, even at, um, I think, $13,019,85. Very close to the bone. Yeah. Um, and, then, and then, you know, it was cut on an upright moviola. And so, uh, and, and, and Fairhoven, again, to his credit, um, with English as a second language, he just really did never departed from what we had written. He made us write a third draft where uh, Murphy was a swinging bachelor, you know, the sort of uh, the Dutch draft. Are they, <laughs> Dutch the, draft. <laughs> you know, the, uh, the libertine draft. But then he realized, and I argued, look, if you take out home, if you take out the family, America lives by threatening the family. E.T., um, uh, the, the, the Amityville horror, you know, you threaten uh, people's home and, and they get really nervous. So to his credit, we put that back in. And the fifth draft was what he worshipped. And the other thing that was interesting, I mean, to me, I think Europeans and African-Americans do violence in a much more realistic way because they've seen it. Paul was a, a child when uh, 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 his country was occupied by the Nazis. If you look at the Hughes brothers, I mean, they compared to Tarantino and um, some of these other jokers who just do this orgy of violence and, and it has no consequences. Um, the, the violence that Europeans like... <clears throat> Polanski, Milos Forman, Verhoeven, it's quick and has consequences um, as opposed to this, you know, so that was Paul's thing, right? And because of the um, <clears throat> peep shows in his native country, he, he, he would show it all, isn't it? I would show it all. <laughs> of course, that didn't quite work in Showgirls. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, but um, and, anyway, I'm going on too long, but, uh, you know, it was a it was a good day at the office. <laughs> well, I was gonna say maybe uh, Steve, because I, I definitely want to dig into your guys' Iron Man script. But is there any info, Steve, we should know just about Iron Man as a project uh, leading up to this? No, no. What's interesting is um, I usually do like a history. I bring us up to when writers came on board. But with this project, um, it seems like you guys were some of the first people involved that I can find, like I couldn't find any type of Iron Man. And to, to explain to the audience again, I don't have the luxury of going of, of where I'm usually able to get all my research from. So, but, um, but from the research closed because of yeah, COVID. From the re yeah. From the research I can do. I, I, the first time I see Iron Man is like um, from 89, 1990 when Universal Studios buys it. And then from there on begins the process of them trying to make it until, you know, the, the Robert Downey Jr. John Favreau one. Uh, so and but the thing I'm starting to see, too, is um, was Stuart Gordon already involved as a director when you guys came on or was he not? Because I can see that maybe in 1989 he might have been attached and in 1989, he wrote Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. He was supposed to direct that, but he didn't. So he was, you know, and then he was going to, and he was about to go and do Robot Jocks also. And so, yeah, was, was Stuart Gordon already involved when you guys came on the project? Mark? I, I don't, I, 
I'm going to say I think yes, but I just don't know exactly if he had a relationship with Waterman or what, what, what I don't know, because I don't remember at all getting any notes from him or him mm. giving us, I mean, I, I think Michael and I were totally alone. We, 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 uh, one thing I will mention, there was something you may be interested in. There's a guy named Mike Sense, S-A-E-N-T-Z. And he wrote this comic called Crash. And I had bought it and I brought it to Michael. And it was one of the first digital comic books of Iron Man, the Iron Man. And it, it was quite fantastic. And apparently he's an illustrator, but that, that really gave me a sense and with Michael to make this a much more contemporary, to bring it out of the realm of the fantastic Superman, superpower into a real on the ground individual with contemporary technology that's wearable, usable, uh, you know, uh, like a weapon really, a, a, an amplified suit that, that gave extra powers, but that was not extraordinary in a way. It was rather banal, you know, uh, and, and we, we tried to kind of figure it, you know, Iron Man comes from Howard Hughes, it comes from a certain long, you know, uh, Stanley looking back at this, playboy, billionaire, arms de dealer, that Michael and I wanted to just to make this a contemporary movie and, and a contemporary landscape where a super billionaire business person has an edge by virtue of this uh, technology and also has the wound of, of having to have this technology because otherwise they, they can't even live. So he's a, a bit of a cyborg. And so that 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 was the space, but you guys have read the script, so I, I don't even remember. <laughs> well, you know, it's basically important to yeah. us. And you basically yeah, dug and, in right there to the question I was going to ask because it's interesting to think now that superhero movies have become so pervasive. But something we always you know remind younger listeners when we do these comic book uh, unmade comic book. Uh, adaptations is that really you know in between 1978 when the first superman movie came out then they all they made four more supermans and they waited over 10 years before they even made a batman movie it's just kind of crazy now with the second you know that x-men and spider-man kind of came out and were hits that really opened the floodgates and it's just sort of multiple superhero movies every year and you you remember back i felt like during the aughts, everyone was like, when's the superhero bubble going <laughs> to burst? And here we are over 20 years later. And I think it's not going to burst at this point. I think mm -mm. superhero movies are the new Westerns for this uh, phase of cinema, basically. But anyway, sorry, that was a run away. Uh, and you also kind of already answered it. I was just going to say that at that time, there wasn't as much of a rule book for how you even adapt a comic book into a successful movie. Now there's been so much trial and error that we all got to see on the screen. You know, you can kind of be like, all right, well, those people screwed up because they didn't do this or that. Um, but so you guys were like looking at the comic book, but also kind of very much, I think, trying to ground it in uh, not sort of contemporary cinema, as you're saying, but just contemporary reality of the time. Can, can I address that? Can you guys hear yeah. me okay? Oh, yeah. yeah. Good, yeah. good, good, good uh, red lines on the audio? Yes. Okay. So two things Mark said I think are really important. One, the idea of a uh, grounded action and a vulnerable hero. One of the things I liked about 
the, the Batman, and I'm sure that the people at MGM and Amazon, now that Amazon's acquired MGM, are, are were li licking their lips about over RoboCop, and if they understand it, was that you can ding those characters, you can mess them up, like like Bruce Willis in Die Hard, as opposed to Steven Seagal in, in whatever movie his hair is not messed up in. <laughs> Or, and you, you, know, you find that in The Peacemaker, too, um, because uh, that guy, is it Jamie Gunn? Um, James Gunn, the director? It, yeah. He, he understands that, 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 you know, people cut themselves shaving, whereas a lot of these, you know, uh, onslaught of Marvel people uh, are just ridiculous. It, it, you, you check out, you check your brain at the door in terms of realism. And I, I found that with the third matrix. Once Neo starts flying, I'm done, you know, because you can't really ding the guy. And, and we always felt that way with Iron Man that, you know, and, and, and going back to the graphic novel idea, I mean, Ed Newmeyer, uh, my Robocop partner and Mark were much more steeped in the tradition of the, graphic novel than I was, Dread, etc. cetera. Uh, and, and I, but I felt like Robocop with, with Verhoeven's uh, interest in melodrama, good melodrama, and it's like a 10% turn up in volume, we sort of make the, made the first film that seemed adapted from a graphic novel where there was no graphic novel. And I think that was a partially dumb luck and partially the zeitgeist, you know, part of what made Robocop enduring. And then, you know, Mark, you know, kept pushing for this and was such a devoted fan of Stan. Uh, and, and, and I don't know if Stan deserved as much credit as a, as a narrative storyteller uh, uh, as he has been given because Mark convinced me to slip the, our first draft a rough first draft to Stan and Stan immediately gave it to the producers and they were offended and upset and blah, blah, blah. But I think it was because Stan read it and he didn't understand what a screenplay was. And I mean, I can circle back to the award show last night when Coda, the, 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 the writer director won the adapted screenplay award. It immediately made me realize that um, the voting members of the Academy, people in the industry, don't understand what it takes to write a screenplay because Coda was up against Dune and Power of the Dog that were, those were almost unadaptable novels. And Dune in particular is a, a major achievement. But, you know, the, I think the Academy is loaded with SAG members. So you find that aspirational films like Coda and La La Land win a lot more than they should because the SAG members are these aspirational people whose craft is their body and their voice. And I don't think they understand what it means to be a screenwriter. Uh, yeah, I guess for listeners, we're recording this the day after the uh, Academy Awards. And, and, and the, the one other thing that's, uh, I, I find that the screenplay is like the elephant in the room. When you hear executives or actors and actresses or directors or producers they, 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 somehow the screenplay just arrived and then it's their movie, right? Whereas that, you know, the, the writers was ass meets chair. They had to grind this thing out, but somehow those people don't understand what that means or what writing means. I mean, if you look at um, uh, uh, 
the the writer directors uh, the writer director of Get Out and Lady Bird those those are six and seven year endeavors. I met both of them, and they said it took that long. So um, it's kind of kind of an elephant in the room. Oh yeah, the screenplay. Ooh, okay. Anyway, my movie. Blah blah blah. <laughs> sorry. Yeah. No, no reason to be sorry at all. Um, but yeah, <laughs> getting into your guys' script. The one thing that I always think is interesting, especially for. A mo- an unmade movie that eventually gets made as, you know, a different movie, the the Robert Downey Jr. John Favreau one. Uh, but the similarities that just kind of wind up inevitably in there, too, because uh, uh, the, the the grand arc of yours is also, in a way, the grand arc of the new the one that got made, which is Tony Stark facing off against the guy who takes over his company and then he fights like kind of the big, ugly, mechy uh, robot. You know, yeah. I don't know if some of this is that people end up seeing these old scripts somewhere along the process, if it's kind of like a lateral <laughs> evolution. Because um, you guys made up your villain, Jeremy Bland, uh, and Jeff Bridges plays Obadiah Stane, which is a character from the comic. But at the end of the day, it's still a board member uh, trying to overthrow Tony Stark. You know, it's the same same plot device. Um, Good point, Josh. Wow, <laughs> we, we need to arbitrate, Mark. Yeah, yeah. there's still time. <laughs> like this, keep going. Yeah, wait yeah. a minute. Well, also, you guys do, and this wasn't in the first Iron Man, but uh, as the the movies have gone along, they keep playing fast and loose with how Tony Stark can even carry his like armor around. Like, I I don't think it's ever quite as bad as he has a watch, or does he? Now I don't remember if that in in the um infinity war but because your guys he gets the suit out of a suitcase and yeah, steve right. correct me if i'm i think that happens in one of these later marvel yeah, movies it, it does i can't remember because they're all now like they blur together There's, and i and yeah. Tony Stark's in <laughs> half of them he's was in all the spider-man mm-hmm. movies uh yeah it does get hard to remember what happens where but i, I it has to definitely be a briefcase in one i'm almost positive but i was reading that also because i thought you were going to bring up the actor thing because that comes up that in does kind yeah of, I... uh well so i guess uh i don't uh, i was about to say spoilers but uh we'll, <laughs> we'll get into it but a key plot point in yours as well is that jeremy bland's plan is that he is going to kidnap tony stark and replace him with an actor which I don't know if you guys saw Iron Man three, uh, the villain in that Ben Kingsley is revealed to just be this like Cockney British actor that they hired to play the super villain. So it's not quite the same thing yet. It's all kind of the we same joke for the project. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, that, was, that was the first thing I thought of when I was reading it. I was like, oh, is it actor now in this Iron Man when there's going to be another one in Iron Man 3? I thought, you know, you can't help but to think it, though. You that, know? that was Mark's idea, like the, the double, uh, which is, I think, was a great idea. Um, and wasn't he an alcoholic and, and a buffoon? And oh, yeah, because had- in yours, oh, Tony great. Stark is a teetotaler. <laughs> And so that's kind of one of the subtle giveaways when this guy's at a party and he starts drinking and they have to kind of be like, uh, he's, he's got a new outlook on life. And then he just gets really drunk and starts saying stupid shit, botching the lines they gave him. Yeah. Uh, because in this, you also reveal uh, that the CIA had kidnapped Howard Hughes and replaced him with a lookalike. That's yeah. where uh, part of the idea comes from. 
Uh, but yeah. but the, going back to the suitcase thing, um, and you know maybe this lumps in with what you were saying of possibly your ideas were a little bit beyond uh, the technological capabilities. But I would have loved to have seen this executed with the technology at the time. Just thinking because part of my problem, as much as I do genuinely like the Marvel movies, is that because uh, Robert Downey Jr. really and almost. Uh, I don't even think in the first one, I, I later found out he's almost never actually wearing a suit. Like it's all just really realistic CG, but that meant that they were able to do something that I don't like about CG that happens a lot where people are like, Oh, I'm going to put on my suit. And then they just hit a button and it just kind of spreads all over them. And it doesn't, it doesn't really look like it could exist, but I feel like however they would have done this effect back when you guys wrote their script, they kind of would have had to figure it out a little bit. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I, I mean, a good point is, you know, if you look at the Nolan's original Batman, they show these mechanical things. And Nolan really has been an analog guy, whether you like his work or not. Um, and that has a weight to it visually. I mean, it's a, a little bit smoothed out now. But yeah, I mean, I, I don't know how they would have done it. I mean, RoboJocks, the, 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 the band stuff, I saw tests at the time of, out in the, de the salt flats where they would have these um, robots this big and try to scale them with a, a human who was like a hundred feet away. Right. Oh, I didn't know that. Like that Peter Jackson did a lot of that in the first Lord of the Rings movie too, the forced yes. perspective. But I, I he probably had a little bigger wallet. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Although I, I recently got a Blu-ray for robot jocks uh, and the effects actually still look pretty good. It's all really good stop motion. Oh, and yeah, it's great stuff. Telling you, those guys, those people, I mean, uh, Mark and I included, we worked our asses off, you know, and if you think about it, uh, I think somebody's doing a history of uh, Charlie Pan of Empire Pictures, uh, two or three hour documentary. It was goo, it was um, KY, it was uh, um, foam, it was the last gasp. And that included Robocop with Rob Bottin, the last gasp of those uh, physical effects. Um, and, and, and a lot of people had a lot of great stuff worked out. And those Empire filmmakers, they were throwing themselves off a cliff for that work, you know? Oops. Yeah. Oh, is that the cliff up there? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's raining I, and my, my office is leaking in places. Uh, oh, no. I just yeah, moved that, into way, a new house. New house problems. <laughs> that was why I was looking up, though. Um, sorry, Steve, <laughs> what were you going to say? Oh, the suitcase is in Iron Man 2. Uh, okay. Yeah, so Iron Man does. And then there is a... God, listeners are going to be so angry at me for constantly bringing up the Giver. But there's a movie called The Giver where they... they <laughs> They do pull off when he gets into his suit with no budget of just all the pieces of armor just flying onto him with zero oh. budget. So I, I can see them pulling it off for well, this. Yeah. Then. Um, there was an early Miramax film where uh, a killer robot come. Is it called Hardware? Hardware. Richard Stanley's yes, hardware. hardware. Yeah. I think they did some great mechanical stuff there on a shoestring. For yeah, sure. And, then, and that'll, that'll, yeah. those effects hold. I mean, that's all basically puppets. So that's why it still right. holds up. 
Right. Thing with RoboCop 2, a lot of miniatures in RoboCop 2 with them fighting. And, you know, of course, they would have probably done that with the third act of this. Did you guys yeah. have you guys didn't have like a budget they gave? Like you got to keep it within this range or they just you guys just wrote, you know. No, I think we were, it was blue sky for us. Right, Mark? Yeah, that's fun. That's really fun. Yeah. Yeah. And so the other kind of basic arc of yours, like, again, it's has eerie similarities to the Robert Downey Jr. movie. Um, he's it's let really the key difference is, is whereas the Robert Downey Jr. starts out and he's kind of this crazy fun party animal, uh, as you said, arms dealer. This Tony Stark starts out and he's kind of a teetotaler. He's been having horrible health problems for like a year. He keeps having like heart attacks. Um, but it is kind of a similar thing where he had designed his suit in a way to help keep his body like strong and alive. And basically right as the movies, it seems like the movie takes place right after he just had this big epiphany uh, to stop being that he's been making his family's company has been making all these horrible weapons. He wants to do good for the world. Uh, he has his big, uh, the, what ends up being called vermin, but I, again, the kind of ed 209 uh, big evil war robot that kind of a fun opening where he puts on the suit and it seems like this is how he exercises every day is he spars with the big mech robot. Um, but then also informs the robot that he has to like terminate it. And the robot has kind of like quasi AI and the robot doesn't like that and tries to kill Tony. Really? He, sh he just shouldn't have told the robot that he was going to deactivate it. Um, but so that's like set up for later. Tony ends up having a horrible heart attack. And then Jeremy Bland, the evil executive executes the plan to kidnap him, replace him with an actor, all that. And then the other kind of interesting big arc of the script that I was not expecting, but very much places it in time of when you guys are writing it is that it's all about virtual reality. Cause once Tony's out of the way, bland and the other executives like kind of go raid Tony's warehouse and find all these inventions he'd been working on at home that they didn't know about. And one was this advanced virtual reality. And they're like, this is great. We can sell this to kids and everybody. And then I love Jeremy Bland's character becomes like a VR junkie for this program called Heather two. That's just kind of this like sex program where a sexy lady in lingerie comes and mm -hmm. like hangs out with him. Uh, and it's like, it's slowly ruining his life. I'm like, I love this. <laughs> I was not. Wow. Expecting. I did. I, I loved all that too. I, I was like blown away by it. And I was like, man, Lomo man hasn't even come out. And you guys were like tackling this in your script before that. And so I was, that was a question I was going to ask. What did you guys think when you saw Lawnmower Man? Like, if you saw this, Lawnmower Man, I if guess. If you saw Lawnmower Man, <laughs> I mean, it was kind of a big deal when it came out, I think, right? Actually, I, I, I wrote Lawnmower Man 2. Uh, so got to, got to know that whole universe. And uh, Brett, I can't remember his name, uh, the writer director of the first one, which was. I mean, Mark, Mark uh, brought the virtual reality thing into the party. I mean, I had read about it and stuff, but he was really, really pushed it. And it really landed very well as a, you know, central plank. And Heather, too, too I had forgotten about that. That's, so he became a sex addict. There was all yep. of that. <laughs> uh, 
Very that good. Was so Art. full of K dick. So cool. Oh, by the end, it gets <laughs> gross too because it's not just ruining his <laughs> yeah, like, life. Like his face starts that. kind oh, yeah. of stroking yeah, out and it's like drooping and dying from uh, whatever it's doing to his brain. <laughs> but, but I mean, I think again, you know, with, with Lon Mormon too, the director, once he screwed up and lost Pierce Brosnan, he rewrote the script. And I said to him, look, you have to understand virtual reality is a first person experience. It's not third person shoot over the shoulder. It's a first person narrative voice. And he went, what, what's that all about? So uh, I think a, a lot, maybe our script was a little too smart for the room. You know, we're both a uh, uh, philosopher, rebels, you know, uh, uh, attempting to uh, make something more interesting. And let's face it, mediocre sells in Hollywood. I mean, <laughs> you look at the streaming services. He's an alcoholic XDA. She's a rookie detective. They find the head in one place and the body in the other. Watch what happens. There's like a hundred shows <laughs> like that. You know, there's very little innovation. I mean, there's, there is very interesting innovation on streaming services, but there's a lot of bland, a lot of mediocre. And, and uh, uh, you know, I think that was part of part of the problem with our script, you know, and, and I, I, I met my wife's a big DGA person. So I met Favreau and he talked about how much he adored Robocop. Right. And that really influenced Iron Man. I didn't connect the circle with because a lot of these folks will never say whether they read something or not. Because there are creative issues and arbitration and copyright, mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. So. Uh, anyway, <laughs> oh no! Well, that's all good. Reality. Mark and I started working on another idea called the Hunger Machine, which was basically a, a, a story about a. We wanted David Bowie to play this uh, this sort of um, emperor of the uh, <clears throat> Internet of Things, who was controlling. Uh, American consumerism through this device called the hunger machine. Um, you know, just to sort of get into uh, stories that, that weren't made. You remember that Mark? Yeah. Yeah. I think <laughs> we've got a whole, a whole outline of that project somewhere. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we, were young, awesome. we were unstoppable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But you guys were such ahead of the game with this uh, concept and this Iron Man script. You know, I was reading it. I was kind of blown away by that. Yeah, maybe a little bit too, I don't know, again, too ahead of the curve. I mean, I'm not trying to give myself props. It's just that, you know, there's a lot of stuff in the air that um, is not being dealt with uh, by the uh, media complex. It's just too, uh, people, in fact, that's part of the reason probably why new ideas can't break in because people are too busy servicing the, the people with deals and the streaming services and um, um, but I find that those people aren't really culture barons. I, I don't I don't think they're doing much that's innovative, frankly. Hmm. I was also going to say, again, just talking about the, the differences between this movie and the Robert Downey Jr. one, but thinking <laughs> along the lines of the um, 
unique original ideas because I very much like the movie that got made. Uh, but I think one of the complaints even fans of the movie had was that the movie so much fun. And then when we finally get to the final battle between Iron Man and Jeff Bridges in the, the big evil suit, it's like just a little generic almost. Uh, that complaint would not have been made about your Iron Man vermin thing. Because the other thing I was not expecting out of this script was, you know, you have the setup where he's fighting this uh, robot that was designed for war and he's like, I got to deactivate. It's like, well, obviously this robot's going to come back and he's going to have to fight it at the end. What I was not expecting is that when Bland and the other guys take over the company and are just like cannibalizing all of the the stark inventions they find and they find that one, they decide to combine it with virtual reality and there's a vi- very much reminded me of some of the like RoboCop satire stuff is they end up having this focus group with a bunch of kids to design the like perfect scary toy. Um, and it's redesigned and I'll read your description of it because it's amazing. So this is what ends up becoming vermin. Uh, it's frightening. A Giger like portrait of a winged man beast samurai technobot gargoyle. It carries spears, lightning bolts, sports two mouths lined with razor sharp teeth, massively constructed arms and over pumped chest, all sitting atop a huge horse like legs with cloven hooves. It's evil incarnate. This would be. Uh, and then they end up programming it with the personality of Genghis Khan. <laughs> is that in our script? Is that in our yeah. script? And then the whole ending is when it finally goes like sentient. It has the most like insane personality. It's because uh, it, it like overhears a janitor listening to uh, a rap song earlier while it's like being designed before it turns evil. So it's like rapping out. It's basically sings a rap at one point about how it's going to like take over the world. Uh, and then when Iron Man shows up to fight it for their first time, it's about to eat a baby. It's like dangling a baby over its mouth and Iron Man swoops in to save it. And I was like, oh, my God, this would have been batshit. I wish I wish this could have gotten made. Damn. Uh, oh my God. Good work. Yes, it's. And it also does it like it tells all the kids that are, that it's oh, connected yeah. to to start killing their parents, yes. which is pretty, in, which is a uh, very like uh, satanic panic ish of the 80s, like listening to music and the music telling you know, people thought the music was telling them to kill their parents. And you guys put that in this just kind of frightening. Another yeah, and way this, the toy Iron really has- is telling them to. Yeah. Uh, oh, and at one point, because uh, <laughs> this is part where it sees a billboard for you can like call like, uh, I don't know, like an escort service or something. And I was like, where is this going? And next time we see Vermin, he's got a bevy of buxom babes with him uh, as his like harem prisoners when the executives come to talk to him and are just like, uh. And it wants, you know, its, own, it wants its own talk show. That was, that was, that was like, this is amazing. I, I bet, bet James Gunn now would make a good version of that script. Yes. <laughs> That's pretty funny. That's pretty funny. But again, I think we were, it was because we were unsupervised, um, <laughs> you know, uh, that helped us just run, have our imagination run rampant. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I, I can't say enough about how the development process tends to bleed some of these things out. Mark was complaining he had 
turn in an outline for Judge Dredd. Uh, do you want to explain how they brought the hammer in uh, after you pitched to Pressman? Yeah, let me do that. But this really, <clears throat> first of all, thank you so much for reading that. That was freaking outrageous. Well, it just reminds me of the kind of delicious fun we did have writing. And it's and it's an incredible thing. You, you actually see it in your mind together as the writers and it just feels so cool. But wow, it sounded so cool. Okay, so um, I... I told you I'd work with David Fincher and he called me and he said, Ed Pressman, who's a producer, he did American Psycho and a great number of movies, wanted to do a version of Judge Dredd. And so he said, hey, I, I set it up so you can go meet him. He wants me to possibly direct it. So I got the meeting and when I went into the lobby, who was there but Michael and Ed Neumeyer, and they just had pitched or were leaving. And I was like, hey, Michael. <laughs> so I went in and I uh, and I had known this comic really well because I love 2000 AD. It was just deliciously obscene and chaos gone out of control. And the police are judge, jury, executioner. They are the law in, an, in, in a highly irrational, exuberant kind of place with all kinds of psi uh, detectives and cops and wonderful judge death coming from other dimensions. Take So uh, I write the script. I, I finally get this job. I write the script. I turn it in on a Friday and Saturday morning, I get a phone call at 11 in the morning. Hello? I said, hi, this is Ed, Ed Pressman. Mark, we love your script. It, it's incredible. It's, Cause they had William Wisher writing the script as well. So they were, they were double developing. You may all know this, right? And um, anyway, he said, I think we're going to give it to Bob Zemeckis. I love it. We're going to get this made. And I, I was ecstatic because I was really struggling staying alive as a writer to, in, in Hollywood. Anyway, about five weeks later, we go into the meeting and there's Charlie Lippincott. And Charlie Lippincott, I didn't know Charlie Lippincott, but I understood he was a producer involved with Star Wars and a lot of projects. He, as the meeting started to progress and suddenly I'm introduced to Charlie, I understood that where I thought Judge Dredd should be John Cleese and was a comedy and was an excessively <laughs> funny, he was telling me he, they have talked to uh, Stallone, nothing against Stallone, and he would be Judge Dredd and we need more action, et cetera, et cetera. So that I, it, my just, I just started to just, oh my God. I, you should read that script because I think it's hilariously funny. It would be, it would be oh yeah, totally. Uh, we, I guess to Michael's point, Michael's been through it many, many, many more times than me. You know, you go in one direction and the producers have another idea of a star, of a director and demands and, and a, a property takes on its own life or is catered. Someone else is sort of dictating to you what to write. But in both these instances with Iron Man and Judge Dredd, we got to write what we wanted. And it was just, yeah, one thing that Fincher did tell me that was great. He goes, Mark, just don't think about the budget for a second. And I've been <laughs> writing more, you know, I'm going to have an independent yeah. film with, you know, for a million five. So you're always writing in the bedroom. They go, you know, there's no mm -hmm. action. But here's like, let it rip. And that was <laughs> like, 
spend a billion, let's go. And it, it, was, it was phenomenally fun was experience. It, but was I, it I, don't, I don't know what happened with the Iron Man in terms of, I don't even remember the reception. I know Michael and I felt really good about it. We were so excited. Like it was so contemporary, but where it went there, and how was it was wasn't there a goo and plastic challenge with uh, the Stallone dread also? They, they, the CGI was barely, uh, ha was only crawling like a baby. So their big monster at the end um, also was this sort of sculpted mechanical mess huh. that I'm sure was a nightmare to move around. Huh. Uh, yeah, I don't. Oh, yeah, there was, I haven't seen that movie the since the '90s, so I don't remember it well. Yeah, <laughs> well, it was like a robot. Two, Total Recall also was a just a, a nightmare. You know, a Robo Teen's best work. The the woman with the drawers that came out of her chest and stomach. I mean, that was oh, all yeah. mechanical. And, wow. and think about that, Rob. Uh, you know, I know him a little bit. Is a recluse and. Uh, was like traumatized every time he had a job because, you know, he realized that this thing had to live, you know, in a way under the lights with Zeiss lenses and, you know, there's no way to, to erase. Yeah. Um, when Michael, uh, Mark was just kind of commenting on, do you have any memories of what happened when you turned Iron Man in? Like, did, do. you know, you never did this. Was this the only draft you ever did? We, yeah. yeah, we did. Uh, yeah, we only did one draft. I mean, part of the charm was uh, off the project after. I mean, Stan read it and we went into the office and Stuart and Stan and Steve Waterman and what, Jeff Frankel were all huddled around a table. And Mark and I walked in and they kind of looked over around at us but they treated us like pariahs um, because we had sort of, um, I don't know whether we, you know, Stuart, all Stuart would kept saying was, I want Iron Man to fight a tank. I yes. want Iron Man. And we we like, just were rolling our eyes. Like, are, are you serious? I mean, that's like he wanted the ending to be a tank or he just wanted that to be a scene. No, no, that was the whole zeitgeist of his, his sense of what the project was. He did yeah. not see it as a contemporary story in, in, in a, you know, in a, a globalized world of international business and ciphers and, you know, uh, uh, he didn't well, see the reality of uh, robotics as 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 actually uh, uh, and, uh, something that could be instantiated as uh, almost like a medical device, and some he just wasn't another. It was a it was a fantasy movie where we were making a hard realism movie in a way. I mean, the same thing happened. Uh, Newmar and I turned in to MGM uh, uh, the Return of RoboCop in January of 2018, and the project kind of went sideways because Amazon acquired MGM and so how that all gets sorted out I don't know but those executives maybe they read the script but they didn't understand it at all we you know we had a, again a Peter Thiel type character who's uh, a, a modern day vampire who's uh, harvesting blood from ghetto kids because you know Thiel in fact injects the blood of uh, young um 18 year old donors because he thinks that 
blood injections will extend his life. So we made him the villain. Uh, uh, and as a developer of nanotechnologies that can attack and enhance DNA. I mean, these are things that are openly being discussed on the internet all the time. And yet, uh, you know, the, 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 the second uh, Avengers movie was completely fucking silly. You know, once you're in a position where you can do anything, you don't do anything. I mean, What's up with that? <laughs> I mean, Fincher, you know, I watched the second half of Benjamin Button and it is a nearly perfect uh, exploration of loss and grief. I mean, he labors way too long to set it up with the African-American community and how Benjamin goes out and goes on a boat and whatever the heck. But, you know, once he gets the podium, he, he, he does a deep dive into the, the process of loss and grief. Remarkable. So some people understand what an opportunity they have in, in an era of mass communication. Um, and other people, I don't know, Francis Coppola said it best, I think, in, in, in terms of what Mark and I's attempt was, um, he asked the question, which is the more dangerous animal? the director with a word processor or the writer who wants to direct. <laughs> and clearly the director with a word processor is a much more uh, infantile, incapable uh, creator than writers who want to direct. I, and, and my, I am H.O. Well, as a writer, uh, I am biased. So <laughs> I would of course agree. <laughs> um well, Steve, maybe to kind of start winding things down, is there any info you wanted to give about the project after this point? Um, yeah, I'll, I'll, do, I'll go through it really quick. Um, don't want to. Oh, oh, yeah. By the way, the other crazy thing was right when you guys were working on this, Batman just came out, made $250 million. And then Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles came out in 1990, made $135 million. So I am really shocked that they weren't trying to push this, you know, like really push this through because superhero movies were just starting to, you know, make a lot of money. But, um, but all right, but here's the history I kind of dug up on the project. From what I can see, you guys did the first attempt at it. And then like in 1991, a gentleman named Roy Thomas came on board to take over writing. And he wrote a movie called Fire and Ice and he wrote Conan the Destroyer. And then I have a separate treatment of just Stuart Gordon's notes on that draft. Not going to go through that. Um, and then in 1995, the project kind of came back out again. And uh, I guess that's around the time of your Judge Dredd was probably starting up. And then so that they got at that point, uh, the writer of Pocahontas to write the story. And that's around the time in 1995, Nicolas Cage started to show interest in playing Tony Stark. Hmm. And then in 1996, 20th Century Fox acquired the rights of Iron Man from Universal. And in 1997, uh, Stan Lee wrote a story that Jeff Vinter uh, who wrote, who would go on to write iRobot and Final Fantasy, The Spirits Within. He wrote a draft based on Stan Lee's story. And, um, and then Nicolas Cage went off 
to attach himself to that unmade Superman movie. And then Tom Cruise. Yep. And then Tom Cruise started eyeing to be Iron Man around 1998 with his production company. And then in 1990, 1999, early 1999, uh, Tom Cruise um, left the project kind of kind of saying that, you know, it failed to gel. And also Marvel's bankruptcy issues. He, he wanted to wait to those settled, perhaps before negotiating it again. So and then in 1999, uh, New Line Cinema came in and took over the project. And then they let go of Jeff Vinter's script probably because it was attached to 20th Century Fox and they were going to do their own thing with it. And um, interesting, again, 1999, October, this is from this newspaper, the Desert News, Quentin Tarantino has been approached to write and direct (laughs) Iron Man. So I don't know if that's true. It's in a little newspaper I I found. I am dubious. Yeah, because I think he was also... That shows you how... how CGI completely liberated the Marvel universe. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there were things like uh, the, the way you described our the uh, crowning moment of Vermin uh, with the, all of the Heather bots around her. I mean, wow! How do you do that mechanically? I don't. I, I, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it would have been interesting to see someone try. (laughs) Yeah, I'd like to see it adapted into a graphic novel or something. You know, what you guys did, too. That would be kind of interesting. Call up Marvel. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You guys have have done an incredible amount of homework and uh, 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 research. And uh, I'll echo what Mark said. I'm blown away. This, This is like you guys are doing a great job. Well, yeah. thank you. Research well, thank is all you. Steve. Yeah. As long as someone appreciates it, I'm happy, including Josh and <laughs> appreciates it. Where did you, you know. get the script? We don't even have it. Oh, that was from. Oh, you should have told. I would have sent it. Yeah, please send it to you us. Send it <laughs> I thought Wait, you had it. Did we get that from no. Quay? I think yeah, we I thought he sent it to you. I thought no. he got it from you guys. No, he got, I, no, it wild. He got All right. He oh, man, it. I wish I would. I, you, I, I think you got guys it had from it. the Stuart Gordon Library there. Yeah, he, Madison. Yeah. Oh, I want to see a copy of it sold here on the streets of Manhattan. You know, they have all those screenplays. <laughs> That'd be awesome. All right, yes, I'm sending it to you. I'm so angry. I'm kicking myself. I, I, I was under the impression you guys had it. Oh, my goodness. Thank you. All Is right. that a PDF? Yeah. Yeah, I have an outline from you guys, and I have the script. I'll send you both. Oh, my God, that's fantastic. Wow. Gosh, we should have an, uh, a reading of it. Like, uh, <laughs> I love it. My Josh, it was fantastic. Hey, oh, Josh I'm is available. awesome at reading. <laughs> um, well, wait, Steve, was there any more history to oh, close yeah, just up really qu- I'm just going to close up really quick. In 1999, again, um, Terry Ruscio and Ted Elliott became writers of the Iron Man movie with New Line. And then in 2000, the writer of the Iron Giant came on to write it, you know, so they've been going through, they're going through like a writer a year, it seems like. It was rumored that Josh Whedon was going to step up and write and direct in 2001. And then in um, 2003, uh, New Line hired the two guys that wrote Spider-Man to do it, um, Alfred Goa and Miles Millar. 
And then in 2003, Nick Cassavetes, who just wrote, who just directed John Q and directed The Notebook, he came in. <laughs> yeah, he came in to sign. He came in to direct and rewrite that draft too. Wow. And then David Hayter came in to rewrite that draft. God. So, so yeah, much and then, money getting spent on this yeah, script. Yeah. But it's like every year they're going through a new writer. And then and then we pretty much 2006 is when Marvel steps in, gets back to rights, you know, to self-finance it and brings on John Favreau. And there we go. And then that will start, you know, wow. where we are now with the Marvel Universe. I kind of truncated all that. I want to keep you guys forever. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Um, yeah, so that's a little history of the project when you guys started to when it got made. It went through a lot of writers. Amazing. <laughs> yeah, pretty, pretty insane. I'm kind of anyway. Yeah, I, I think uh, one of the uh, one of the uh, things that Mark and I may not have, have completely understood was the kiss rule. Keep it simple, stupid. <laughs> but, you know, and, and so a, a simpler narrative might have, um, although I don't think a lot of executives understand that rule either. You know, the simple, clean line. Uh, I remember with uh, Neumeier called me at one point and said, oh, Sony is um, in trouble on a, finding a sequel for Anaconda. So two years earlier, I had been approached um, to rewrite a journey to the center of the earth story where uh, these people find a T-Rex deep in a cavern. And so I said, we'll make them biohunters. And what they find is uh, an orchid that, uh, promotes longevity and guarding it there is a dinosaur that's been dining on it and is a kind of immortal. And so they, the, the executive at the other company said, no, we're going to go in another direction. And I had spent like two months on an outline, right? So I went in and swapped the dinosaur for the snake <laughs> and the executive and pitched the simple lines, high beans. He bought it in the room. That was the, one nice. of the only times I've ever sold a pitch in the room <laughs> because it was simple, right? And they could, because basically I think the problem with a screenwriter or any writer is you have the idea in your head. So you assume that everybody understands what you're thinking. Whereas unless you can communicate it, they're pretty much in the dark. They're like an mm -hmm. audience that hasn't even seen the movie poster. So mm -hmm. It is a challenge. The transmission of ideas is really a challenge in, in the development process. Well, that reminds me, you have this awesome project that never got made. It sounded awesome. It was called Murder Cycle. Was that like... Oh, that's a great oh, that title. Was the Charlie Band thing. Yeah. Hill <laughs> Dome, Murder Cycle. Char Charlie would take posters and go to the AFM and yeah. say, hey, here's a movie we're going to make. And, yeah. and, and they would buy, do, do these pre-sales. So with Deadly Weapon, it was this, it, there was this crash train and, a, and, a, and a, a, a box and this motorcycle gang was coming up to the box and they were going to find it and terrorize the town. And I thought, oh God, let's make it like one of the kids from E.T. or, you know, uh, a, a, a bullied team, which... And that's another one that, they, that, that one of the only ones that was bought in the room. I, I went in and pitched it. And Charlie said, this is great. Let's call the agents. Let's do this. And, and you know, and I went, oh, shit. So I called Mark and said, man, I need help, man. Come on. And uh, 
So we did, did this very solid outline. I mean, I wasn't a very good director. So there was a great 40 minutes and then it kind of died. Um, well, I uh, liked it when I was a kid. I like it. I like it too. I, I liked it. I grew up watching that. Hey, hey, in a couple of weeks when I'm de- a depressed writer again, can I call you guys? Yeah. Up? <laughs> well, <hell yeah. laughs> I also mm-hmm. liked Anacondas, The Hunt for the Blood Orchids. Yeah, me too. I saw, <laughs> Again, I saw it, it in the theater. Simple. It was simple. <laughs> and the director, who's a friend of mine, Dwight Little, uh, Ridley Scott images for Dwight Little prices. You know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a, a, a lot, I mean, it's a, it's a weird process, man. Hollywood is such a weird process. Dude, oh, true. Made my favorite Seagull movie, uh, Marked for Death. Wait, little. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, was that the, that the Steve Seagal in Jamaica? Yeah. Yeah, it's so good. <laughs> <laughs> they had to. They had to shoot second unit in the downtown of Kingston, Jamaica, where I've been. So they just walked in handheld and threw a bunch of money in the air, and because they couldn't control the extras. Um, wow, that's a whole. Other, that's a three martini conversation. That yeah. Steve Seagal. Bartender. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Next time. All right. Well, Mark, Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Um, are you guys on social media? Is there a website or anything you want to relay to the listeners? Mark, you've got Mark's got a lot going on. He's uh, he is a um, uh, postmodern Dadaist storyteller. Just tell him everything, man. <laughs> Uh, well, first, I want to say this was a blast. Thank you. All, uh, this was just so much fun. Thank you so much. I, I, this is just wonderful. Um, MarkLafia.com. I, I went from Hollywood in 1996 to San Francisco, where I started a company called ArtAndCulture.com. So I, I was very interested in computation and how you could make relationships using the computer and the internet. And then I went on to be for a year, uh, the cre- creative art director at the Museum of Modern Art. And then I went on to start doing uh, computational films. And tomorrow night I will go to the Whitney because I'm in their permanent collection where I redid the movie, The Battle of Algiers as the force of play between the, a bottom-up structure and a top-down. And then I went on more spending my time uh, as a visual artist and a very, very independent filmmaker with these tools. Um, I made a, a different independent films. And you can find those things at marklafia.com or my Squarespace site. So thanks for asking. And that's <laughs> where you'll find it. And again, thank you. It's really a pleasure to be with you guys and, and reconnect with Michael and to meet the two of you. Thank you very much. Thank you. How about you, Michael? Are oh, no. you uh, are you out there anywhere? Oh uh, yeah. I, I, um, in order to, I had a devastating, epic fail when I with my fourth feature as a writer director when uh, I convinced Newmeyer to help me rewrite a script called Marathon, which was a, a robbery during the LA Marathon, prior to all the heist movies uh, and. USA was acquired by Focus uh, when, and Steve Golan from Propaganda was one of the producers and we were going to cast Billy Bob and it all fell apart. Sort of like one of those Tibetan sand uh-huh. pictures, turn on the fan and it all goes away. <laughs> so I decided to start doing large format landscape photography. I thought I'll, I want to do something that only I could screw up. So I've been 
since 2002, first shooting four by five and five by seven sheet film, and then graduating to eight by 10 sheet film, printing to 30 by 40 inches. And I'm in a couple of the galleries, including in Carmel, California. So that was a third career, but I'm still trying in Hollywood. I've got a streaming series called Smart Mouse about the dystopian aspects of artificial superintelligence, which we're about halfway through setting up. Uh, and uh, so everybody who's listening, just keep on the lookout for Smart Mouse. It, it, it's, a, it's a dystopian party. All right. Uh, and you can find us on Twitter at Never Made Film and Instagram at Best Movies Never Made. I also recommend you get the Electric Now app so you can watch video of our podcast. Uh, we'd like to thank everyone here at the Electric Surge Network, including Bill Ritter and our producers, Mark A. Altman and Dean Devlin. Until next time, I'm Josh Miller and Steven Scarlatta saying we won't see you at the movies. This show is produced by Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman and is an Electric Surge Network production.